Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Well, we are back. Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcasts, season four. Chris, we made it to season four. How about that? I, I, <laughs> I'm just still shocked. So we are back here with Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. That's 2005, was released September 13th of that year. This is an album that was released on Parlophone in the UK, Capital in the US. It was reissued in 2018. This is an album produced by, I guess you could call him a super producer, right? Nigel Godrich. So this thing was recorded September 2003 to April 2005 at many different studios. I actually have four down, Ocean Way, RAK Studios, AIR London, and then Record One Studios. So we'll get into that in a bit. And a bit at Abbey Road, too. Yeah. And then Abbey Road. I feel like every album, Paul sneaks back into Abbey Road. It has to be a little Abbey Road, right? Why shouldn't he? And why wouldn't he? (laughs) So yeah, this is the critically acclaimed, fan-acclaimed album and when this album came out i hated it (laughs) but don't worry don't turn the podcast off everybody just step back off the ledge for a second after we did all the research after i did all my research i actually love this album and we'll dig into that throughout the rest of the show chris where are you at same thing and i guess maybe we should introduce our segment with kid because that's one of the things we talked yes. about with Kit. Yes. The fact that all three of us sort of started out with a less than excited take on this album. And over the over time, and especially in reviewing for this episode, we've all really warmed up to it. Yeah. And so Kit O'Toole is an author, a journalist. I mean, she wears many different hats. She's in the Beatles circle, as you'd say. So she was kind enough to stop by and let's dive right into that section huh yeah and after that we'll come back with our usual album breakdown whatever's more important to you you've got to choose what you want to do whatever's more important to be well that's the view that you've got to see it's a Today, we are talking about chaos and creation in the backyard. Today, we have a very special guest, Kit O'Toole, an author and an accomplished Beatles scholar and specialist. Kit, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. And I got to tell you, I'm going to put that on uh, my business card. I just feel so good (laughs) hearing that. (laughs) You've earned it. Yeah, absolutely. And Chris Mercer. Yeah, good to be here, ready to talk about chaos, ready to start season four. 
Here we are. So yeah, we'll jump right in. So Chaos and Creation, this is a record, at least on my end. I didn't really like this thing when it came out. And I got into a little trouble on that on our Facebook page. You know, thank you all for joining that group and being part of the discussion there. But truth be told, as we did research and listened and reviewed and studied, I actually really like this record now. What do you guys think? Well, I had a very similar reaction, Ryan, when when I heard it, that for some reason, it just didn't immediately grab me. You know, Memory Almost Full, that album I instantly gravitated to. I loved the variety on it. And, you know, I've thought about it, and I just don't know if it was the way that the production was, that it sounded kind of too similar in in many of the songs. I think it may have also been the subject matter. And I definitely can listen to songs other than the happy song. But the mood on this was so dark on so many of the songs, and it was kind of startling. Yeah. Yeah, and it just didn't grab me immediately. Yeah, same here. I was in the middle of a lot of stuff. I had just moved from sunny San Diego to gloomy, at least in October, Chicago, and had a lot on my mind other than a new Paul McCartney album, starting a new job, getting to know a new town, and a very different town from the one I'd come from. And so, yeah, I remember thinking that it was more safe, solid, tasteful Paul. The last couple of albums had been kind of safe and solid and tasteful, and I guess I went into it feeling like, okay, this is more of the same. None of this is going to really suck or anything, but none of this is going to blow me away. And then on top of that, there are all these gloomy, slow-moving songs. But wow, has my assessment of this come a long way since then? I can't believe it's been almost almost 15 years since this came out, and I've really come around on it. Listening to it after all this time, you know, and understanding where he was in his career, I now think Chaos is one of his best albums of the last 20 years or so. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree with both of you. You know, it is a bit of a downer, but I guess that's the whole point. I was in my early 20s when this record came out. I was listening to the Arcade Fire and, I mean, <laughs> The Killers and all kinds of, you know, up-tempo, aggressive, you know, young male music. But as I get older, as we all get older, like, I'm easing into this record and I can clearly see why this is not only a fan favorite, but it was a commercial and critical success. I mean, it sold over a million copies. It's a platinum album. Very impressive the whole collection. And I was wrong. I admit it. And you know, I think the album's not that gloomy. Okay. There are some very upbeat songs on there. And, and I, I just think it's true that the gloomier songs are the bigger songs and they tend to suck up a lot of the oxygen on the album. You're feeling so grim at the end of writing to Vanity Fair. You forget that a cheerful song might be next. <laughs> yeah. I guess I didn't pick up on the positivity of, you know, follow me or promise to you, girl, or I don't know how those messages initially got lost. And maybe it was, you know, somewhat of the production. Maybe it was knowing, you know, remember the space he was in at the time, you know, he was coming off of driving rain, which is, uh, was, shall we say a a commercial and critical disappointment. You you should. should. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so listening to chaos now thinking of all of that you know he was going through a lot of changes and this album reflects that but reflects it in a very moving way Mm -hmm. yeah i think a unique facet about this record is that it was started in 2003 
And then it, it took him two years to make it. And there's some songs that he started for previous albums that didn't even make this album that ended up on Memory Almost Full, where Godrich mm-hmm. was like, nope, that song was garbage. You know, sorry about that. And that's like... Maybe David Kahn will put up with that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I really think that's why Memory Almost Full is so great. He took the lessons from this record and he got to have like a good time again. It's a great collection of material and I'm I'm really glad he went through this process, I'll say. It's uh, a good point that you mentioned, uh, Ryan, about Memory Almost Full. I mean, it is sort of part two of Chaos, except it's more upbeat. He's still being reflective. Yes. A lot of the same subject matter, but more cheerfully expressed. Exactly. You know, and looking back at his life. and, And I mean, even, yes, there's a song about him talking about his, that yes, he will die someday. But he's even looking at that in sort of a positive way. So it's really interesting to listen to those two back-to-back. Yeah, they do seem to be um, dark and light sides of the material. Nigel Godrich, who's a very storied and accomplished producer by now, is the producer on this album, and I'm wondering what you guys think about the overall sound and mood of the album, insofar as Godrich had a hand in it. Yeah, you know, it's clean, it's clear, maybe sometimes it's too clean and clear, and it's just, I, I don't find it very experimental at all, it's just straightforward, and maybe that's the point. I know some people think that this could have been McCartney 3. I disagree with that. I don't hear it that way. Yeah, it's in that kind of vein of plug right into the back of the machine. We'll get into his stats here in a little while, but Godrich has produced some albums by favorite artists of mine that I really admire, and so I have a sense of his style and what he's bringing, and I hear him using a lot of his trademark stuff kind of subtly here. For example, he's very clever with creating loops and performing them live, Yeah, and he does that in a way here that's really understated really adds a a lot of richness to the sound, but he doesn't get in your face with it. So I don't hear an aggressive Nigel Godrich sound here, Mm -hmm. which is a compliment to him. Mm -hmm. I do notice some touches that remind me a little bit of Jeff Lynne, particularly the snare sounds being kind of boxy and the vocals being really up front and the sense of soundstage being kind of compressed. So everything sounds a little too close to the listener. Things are really close mic'd and there's no attempt to hide that or to finesse it. So it's a little harsh sounding in places. It is absolutely harsh. Maybe that's why people like it. I I don't know. I think anything after Driving Rain is going to be an upgrade, frankly. Sorry, fans of Driving Rain. Yeah, no, I'm I am completely with you on that. And uh, Chris, what you were mentioning about being close, you know, feeling like that close space. I think that may have initially been another reason why I, I didn't connect with this album. It, it did have this sort of claustrophobic, in mm-hmm. in a way, sound to it. And Paul's voice is you know right up to the mic. I mean, you hear everything. I every mean, you hear, detail. Yeah. yeah, every imperfection, and it was so intimate. But it's definitely a different sound than Memory Almost Full, or even if we want to jump ahead to Egypt Station, where, you know, it's kind of a full... Yeah. 
And Greg Kirsten is much more restrained in the way he uses Paul's voice. He puts puts him back in the mix a little bit, puts a little clever reverb on it. So we're not hearing every little detail, which we don't want to hear at this stage. Right. Yeah, exactly. Are there any highlights for either of you that you'd like to touch on? Well, one of my favorite tracks, not only off the album, but I I think of the past 20 years or so, is Riding to Vanity Fair. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, that was one song when I first heard Chaos that I did connect to immediately. It just jumped out. Really doesn't sound like anything Paul has done. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. such anger there. I mean, obviously somebody really, really hurt him. And the production on this too mm-hmm. uh you know it's it's perfect the moodiness of it the yeah. springs and you know and the plodding tempo and you know but paul isn't screaming you know it isn't it isn't you know angry angry yeah. uh it isn't that but but you can just hear this this simmering right bitterness and just the imagery he uses i mean you know about writing to vanity fair and we still don't quite know and he's been very cagey about mm-hmm. what it refers to i mean is it you know you certainly could read it as how Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know maybe not I mean we we just don't know but it's uh it's a side of Paul that we just don't see very much and I I loved it yeah when we have seen Paul do an angry thing it was like the song angry or I've had enough it's almost a bit of self-parody anger Mm -hmm. you know so to hear this real bitter congealed anger like this is actually it's quite charming is that the word (laughs) sure (laughs) refreshing i think refreshing is the word i'm looking for right well this thought it it was originally like a rock song and nigel was like pull it back you know make it more restrained what's more horrifying a guy screaming and yelling or just like an angry guy that's calm (laughs) well there's there's a sadness to vanity fair too yeah yeah get back to it but absolutely i've heard some negative comments about jenny wren but I love this song. I mean, this is, who cares if it sounds like a Blackbird sequel? It's beautiful. And it's really different from Blackbird. Yeah. It's much more complex harmonically and melodically yes. than Blackbird is. So it goes all these places that Blackbird would never go. It has a lot of, of subtlety in the harmony. And also the instrumentation with the duduk coming in, which we'll, we'll also talk about that later. That's a fantastic and, instrument. And a great touch. That is so interesting because this was a song I did not initially care for. And I think part of it was because it was positioned as Blackbird Part 2. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you listen to it expecting that i just didn't it's the world's weirdest version of black exactly and i just thought well this doesn't work (laughs) you know (laughs) but but if you just listen to it on its own almost forget the blackbird forget the blackbird you know uh i mean yes the guitar playing is very similar Mm -hmm. but thematically i don't know if it works as blackbird part two i think it's Mm -hmm. just uh it's a beautiful song on its own but it's just interesting how your initial pressures can be shaped by even an interview paul gives or or review or or anything like that. Yeah. And this yes. issue of of revisiting sort of styles he's done before, that can go either way for me. He can revisit an older style and absolutely come up with a whole new take on it. 
But then other times he revisits old styles and you think, you've done this before and you've done it better. Why am I listening to this? It's not a definite thing that just because he's dipping into some of his previous material that it's automatically second rate or that's not the case, but it can be case by case. Absolutely. I guess that what is surprising for me is that the pile of material is just consistent. So there's not like a B-side or a, a track that's left off where I'm like, this is garbage. Any song could get swapped in or out. And I don't think that you'd notice a quality shift. Mm-mm. I agree with that. We rarely say that. You could take these extra tracks we're going to be covering later and you could almost arbitrarily swap them out. And I don't think you'd have a worse album when you were done. There really aren't any really weak tracks on this album that I'd say, oh, that's queer, you know, not always the case. In fact, I could have taken a big fat album that just included all of these songs. Yeah. I could have just made a big album for once. I agree, double album. There you go. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but like Time Magazine called this record the first Paul McCartney album that matters since the Beatles broke up. (laughs) How about that? Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, I, we may have touched on this topic before, Ryan, that every new McCartney, after a certain point, after about 90 or something, every new McCartney album was hailed as some giant comeback, and he's finally made a good album for a change, and I find it insulting, you know? Yeah. I think you're right, because even now with Egypt Station, I mean, there have been a couple of reviews that I've read where they've said, you know, he's back. And, Pretty you know, like, hyperbolic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're just like, look, it's it's a you know, it's a good album. Yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I think that's unfair to say, oh, this chaos was, is the best thing he's done since the Beatles. Yeah. I, mean, uh, I don't. It's a wonderful album, but. the little moments on the record that kind of remind you of something he's done before because I could name one in At the Mercy that little bridge part with the horns and then that little instrumental like it's like wings just appears and then disappears into a cloud of smoke again yeah it made me think a little bit of I don't know like the the break in 1985 right the harmonies with the chiming guitars sort of things like that from Wings Yeah, I was listening to Friends to Go and thinking about this idea that it's a George Harrison pastiche kind of. Sure. Or tribute. And thinking, well, if it is a George Harrison tribute, it's a mid-60s George Harrison tribute. It's it's an I want to tell you type song, right? With a few odd chord notes in there and, you know. And the guitar is similar to to George as well. Yeah, not later George. That's true. There are some songs on here, like Follow Me or Too Much Rain, that remind me of, in my opinion, one of his most underrated tracks, uh, Somebody Who Cares. I I just That is a beautiful song. And these sort of message songs he has and that are meant to be uplifting. You know, we were talking earlier about how initially we thought chaos was gloomy and, you know, but when you listen to it repeatedly, you hear some of these messages that are actually quite positive and optimistic. And so when I heard those two in particular, I thought, oh, this really reminds me of that. We talked a little bit about how 
Paul's voice is being recorded and produced on this album. We haven't talked about the quality of the singing itself. What do you guys think about Paul's singing on Chaos? I think it's great. I really, really do. And I think it just goes back to what I had said previously, you know, I'm closer in age now. We all are to the age he was when he recorded this album. In that context, like, man, he can really sing. You know, even on Egypt Station, you know, every every album Paul puts out, you can hear the wear and tear. And of course, you're going to. He's getting older and he plays three-hour shows without drinking a cup of water, <laughs> which is insane. And I actually changed my mind about the whole thing. It's just like the most rock and roll thing about Paul. This is my most valuable gift, and I just don't even take care of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, Ryan, you and I talked, I don't know, a few weeks back before we had really dug into reviewing the album. We were talking a little bit about the fact that although he's... His notes are good and his tone is good, but he sounds vaguely uncomfortable. Yeah, the whole time. On this Mm -hmm. album. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's true. Like he's trying really hard. Looking back at it, I'm amazed at how strong those vocals are and some of those notes Mm -hmm. that he can hit that you wouldn't be able to do it now. But it's just beautiful. And that fragility fits a number of the songs. And it's a very intimate performance. And and Ryan, I wanted to comment on what you were saying earlier about people. People comparing this to McCartney 1 and 2. Yeah. I can see the comparison in terms of being very personal, the vocals being up front, but that's about it. There's some moments on McCartney 1 that are very personal. I mean, maybe I'm amazed, mm-hmm. being the obvious example. And, Hot and, as sun. Yeah, right. Yep, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm <kidding>. Suicide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, little, little ditties like that. And, uh, you know, that was a personal album as well. But this has a very different sound. I mean, it doesn't have that homemade sound to it. This Not is at more all. Polished. Very studio sounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I would say that the vocals for me on Jenny Wren, that maybe is the one song where the vocals are a bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, listening to it just yesterday, I was thinking, this song needs to go up about a whole step. The problem is that he's singing a little too low to have a comfortable head voice, and he's kind of stuck in between his chest voice and his head voice, and it's a little scratchy. If he just bumped it up like a whole step, he'd be solidly in head voice and wouldn't wouldn't sound as ragged, but... The McCartney 1 and the McCartney 2 thing, this could be McCartney 3, that whole argument, I just, I don't get it. I think that McCartney 3 exists in the way that he wanted McCartney 2 to exist, where he made that record for himself, and he would just pop it in and be like, you want to hear this? I think McCartney 3 is like on his phone, and he's like, you want to hear an album? (laughs) Give me the Bluetooth driver, you know, (laughs) like that kind of thing. And he's no longer, I guess, locking himself in a room with a keyboard and just saying, let's see what happens. Yeah, right. Yeah, (laughs) right. You're right. Chaos really stands out. But sonically, thematically, he hasn't recorded anything like it since. Mm -hmm. Even as we talked about before, even when you're talking about a personal project like McCartney, it still doesn't quite sound like this. Mm -hmm. And I think unlike perhaps, oh, Driving Rain, um, I think this album has aged extremely well. Mm -hmm. And maybe a lot of that is due to Godrich. Yeah. It it does seem as if he he just wasn't putting up with any half-assed songs. There's not going to be a Rinse the Raindrops here Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Oh, too bad. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's he's got to insist on good songs. And then it sounds to me as if there were quite a few cases that Paul came in prepared to produce a song in a fairly straightforward way, and Godrich rethought the whole thing in a way that made it much more subtle and open to interpretation. Something like How Kind of You could very easily have just been a goofy, upbeat song, and Godrich turned it into something kind of creepy. Yeah, yeah. subtle. I, yeah. I like that. That really sums up this whole album. Yeah. The production, some of the songwriting, the singing. I mean, it is, and it's not in your face. Yeah, you and know. I'm finding that every one of these songs has something to recommend it. Yeah. Okay, so we won't get too much hate mail this time around from this podcast. That's good. <laughs> How about that? Good news. <laughs> Well, Kit, do you have anything that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? I mean, I know you have several books, I mean, several excellent books, and, you know, we want people to share in what you do as well. Well, thank you. Well, yes, my uh, my book, Songs We Were Singing, Guided Tours Through the Beatles' Lesser Known Tracks, which is part compilation and, and part some chapters exclusive to the book. They're essentially songs that I think deserve more attention. I do get into some of the solo stuff as well. So I get into the songs that I think deserve more attention, and I get into the recording, I get into the the songwriting, and why they matter and how they fit into the Beatles canon or or the solo canon. And I still write the column. It's called Deep Beatles, and uh, it's at somethingelsereviews.com. If you're a Michael Jackson fan, I've also written Michael Jackson FAQ, All That's Left to Know About the King of Pop. It is strictly music. It's not a traditional biography. If you're familiar with the FAQ series on Backbeat Books, it's all about the music. It's all about his dancing. Yes, I certainly do get into the duets with Paul and the videos Uh and the whole thing. And so that book as well, if if you are a fan of Michael and Motown and, and I get into his whole career. Me. I've read through songs we were singing, and you have a whole chapter on Press to Play, Little Willow, Coming Up. Your book goes all the way back to the beginning of the Beatles. You we were talking about Like Dreamers Do, Hello Little Girl, and I believe there's a section where you like explain what remastering is, and you like give context to the 2009 reissues. Like Everybody, you got to check this book out. It gets yeah, very that's special. That's really good information you're providing there, because well, people have no idea what the sonic improvements really are. Thank you. That That is definitely high praise coming from, from you both, and I really appreciate that. And yeah, that was something I worked very hard on because I just thought that. You know, a lot of people were saying at the time to me, why should I rebuy these? Mm-hmm. I already have them, even though I said to them, well, first of all, the 87 CDs, the Beatles ones, sound like they were recorded in tin cans. But <laughs> beyond that, but I wanted to say, what exactly does it mean? And so I, I went into, you know, really explored it, and it was fascinating fascinating to find out about it. And yes, you mentioned Press to Play. That is an album that I've always thought has been underrated and unfairly criticized. So I was really happy to get on my soapbox in okay. this book. Okay, we're going to take a few minutes, go off topic and talk about Press to Play because okay. we've got Kid here. <laughs> Why not? She's on record publicly <laughs> praising this album that you and I have praised 
and that is constantly re- just casually referred oh. to as the worst or one of the worst Paul albums. Yep. And it's lost on me. The big complaint I always hear is, oh, it's so 80s. Well, yes, it was recorded in the 80s. Yeah, so yes. what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what? Yeah, it, I mean, that's the thing. And I loved how adventurous he got. I mean, I like Pretty Little Head. I think that's a really, it's weird as, as heck, but I like it. I mean, Flowers sounds more 80s, but without the adventurousness. Yep, that's a good point. Yeah. I like Flowers in the Dirt, too, well, although too, listening yeah. to it now, yeah, I have some sentimental feeling toward it, because that was the first time I ever saw Paul Wise was on that tour. Yeah. yeah, So I have a lot of sentimental feeling, but when I listen back to it now, I'm like, wow, it hasn't aged as well as I thought it would. Yeah. But Press to Play, I mean, that's in a whole other category, and I think some people just didn't like that he stepped out of his comfort zone. Yeah, Although, you know, art rock is sort of what he's always done. It's what right. he's known for, mm-hmm. this quirky stuff like pretty little head or however absurd that seems very Paul to me but cast in a in a really authentic 80s way not crappy pandering 80s production but really let's see what we can do with all this new technology and I think only love remains is one of the best ballads he's ever recorded I I think that's a beautiful song so I know we could go on and on about this but but I I did want to get into press to play because we finally found a a fellow press to play fan so (laughs) absolutely You know, Kit, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to have you. I mean, I really do love your work a lot. Thank you. And we'd love to, you know, make, you know, see you again on the show sometime soon. I mean, it's... I would love it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. I love your what you guys do and, uh, you know, love the, your analysis. I learn a lot and it's a lot of fun too. So thank you so much for having me on. Are you, are you also screaming at the podcast like Ian Lee does or these other people who are like, ah, other people are like, I'm swerving my car when I'm so mad. <laughs> oh, only once or twice. <laughs> okay, good. Well, that's yeah. good enough for me. Yeah. Okay, Kit, this has been fantastic. We look forward to seeing you again. And thanks for all your work. Thank you very much. So yeah, wow, how fun was that? Great conversation with Kit, and we expect to be repeating that in the future. I've had a lot of fun with her around, so thank you, Kit, for that. That was, that was really good. So we should talk about Nigel Godrich, his career, what his high points have been. Do you have any favorite Nigel Godrich? Songs or albums specifically? I mean, Well, albums he's produced. I like a lot of the work he's done with Beck. And I mean, definitely, I, you can't not talk about Radiohead when you talk about Nigel and right. w- however you feel about Radiohead they're one of the most important bands that's probably ever been around so yeah. I could point to so much you know uh, Sea Change is amazing Sea Change is amazing you know one of my favorite Beck albums is Mutations which was his first album with Nigel and to me Beck never quite came back to this kind of music we hear on mutations it's very songwriterly really puts the emphasis on melody and chords and the lyrics are very dense 
I mean, we always expect Beck's lyrics to be dense, but they're they're quite surreal in this case. And there's a lot of variety on that album. He covers a lot of different styles. There's a Tropicalia song called Tropicalia. <laughs> and there are these really wacky folk songs like Lazy Flies. Yes. And We Live Again, which is a kind of a tired, creepy sounding kind of throwback to a 60s folk song. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting album. I encourage people to check it out. And Godrich's techniques and sounds really merge well with what Beck had been doing up to that point, which was stuff like Odelay and Mellow Gold. Lazy flies are hovering above The magistrate puts on his gloves and he looks to the clouds all pink and disheveled there must be some blueprint some creed of the devil inscribed in our minds a hideous game vanishes in thin air the vanity of slaves who wants to be there to sweep the debris the honest dead horses to ride in the sun A life of confessions written in the dust I'm a big fan of the artist The Divine Comedy. I don't know if you know this group. Uh-huh. He did, I don't know them. Oh, man. He did this album called Regeneration for them. It was recorded 2000, released 2001. It's got this song called Bad Ambassador. Another track called Perfect Love Song. I mean... These are some of my favorite songs ever. Wow. And wow. I embarrassingly did not know that Godrich did that record up until when I was doing the research for this podcast. I was like, wait, what? What? The, what? Yeah, they, had, wow. they, they did a follow-up to the, they did, uh, their album that was released in 2004 called Absent Friends, which is also great. We can play a little bit of those tracks. I wanna chill, wanna sit real still I wanna sleep like the dead on a bed of roses Me and my lovely wife We're in the prime of life I wanna feel real, wanna free will Wanna steal the show from under their noses I wanna get you off Well ain't that enough I'm gonna have to sail down my ivory tower by myself a jag you are I'm a Another favorite of mine produced by Nigel Godrich is Terror Twilight by Pavement. Mm-hmm. It was the last Pavement album, and it's sort of known as the softest Pavement album, the one that's the most melodic and almost mainstream, although not that mainstream. It's pretty weird. Yeah. But that's another album where you get this really great lo-fi kind of work from Nigel, where he's yeah. doing a lot of stuff with, I don't know if it's actually tape, but tape techniques. Sure. Old-fashioned techniques. Yeah, it's it's really great album. A lot of good synthesizer work on that album, which is not something you expect normally from Pavement. So, yeah, another great one there from Nigel. They'll wear you down sometime, kids like wine. Magic Christians to the rhyme, cause bad girls are always bad girls. 
One more thing to mention with Nigel is his side project with Tom York of Radiohead, mm-hmm. and it's called Atoms for Peace. And this is actually some of Nigel's most interesting stuff. Very, very upbeat, very electronic, just kind of unrestrained in the use of electronics. Yeah. And so I recommend people check out Atoms for Peace if you want to get a, a better sense of Nigel kind of doing his own thing. If we're pointing to other artists, my last one that I would point out is Neil Finn's record, Try Whistling This. And this okay. is, I mean, this is what a lot of people feel is one of Finn's best records. I get why Paul would tap this guy or his management for a, a, an album because, I mean, listen to the names we just said. I mean, these are all artists that were very relevant, cutting edge, artistically acclaimed. Of course you're going to call them up. This album was a long time in the making, and one of the things, Godrich, admit I pulled this quote, my initial reaction was one of terror, not only because it's a very important person being Paul, but I really wasn't sure how willing he would be to get his hands dirty. So they started a collaboration. They did This Never Happened Before and Follow Me together, and that was enough to convince them both that they could you know, develop this whole album. And I don't know how many we have to tell. I think a lot of the people listening know a lot of these stories about Paul and Nigel, but they didn't really always get along. Well, Nigel was blunt, apparently. Yeah. Hey, Paul, that song is crap. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. How often does Paul hear that from a collaborator? Yeah. he, He said, I warn you, you know, talking to Paul, I know what I like. And so there was some heated discussion and writing to Vanity Fair was one of these songs where we, they got down to it and it was, I like it. I don't like it. I like it. And then he realized there was no point in trying to box Paul out like that. And they, they actually moved on and they went to finish the rest of it. He's like, well, I like the first line. And then Paul opened up. He's like, okay, well, you like that? Well, and he like, started to rewrite some of these things in the studio. And I think mm-hmm. this kind of tension, not that you always have to compare Paul McCartney back to the Beatles, but it is kind of what Paul needs. He needs that push and pull. He needs somebody to be yeah. like, that line's shit. This is bullshit. Try again. It resulted in an album that is notably free of bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's this little anecdote where the third session they did together, Paul came in, he played Nigel at the Mercy, and Nigel actually said, fucking hell, that's so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. So. Let me just quote from the great Luca Parasi once again. In uh, 2003, McCartney got together with David Kahn as producer and his, his band, his touring band, And at Abbey Road Studio 2, they recorded nine demos. After that, 
McCartney suddenly asks George Martin, can you recommend a producer? Interesting. George Martin recommends Nigel Godrich. So Paul abandons the project he's working on with David Kahn and begins a new project with Godrich. Fascinating. He brought some of those songs in his studio and Nigel's like, no way. Like Ever Present Past, which was a different titled song. It was called Perfect Lover. And Nigel's like, nope, sorry about that. And I guess they had recorded it. He's like, nah, sorry, next. And so that created this tension that led to the pile of stuff. You know, that's a phrase you've used. Every song is good. All the B-sides, everything. It's worth noting that there's a, there's a kind of a weird thing that happens here where Paul begins this album with Nigel Godrich. And he records several songs. They fire the band, temporarily fire the band basically because Nigel wants Paul to try something else. He says, "Uh, you're too comfortable with your band. Let's get you away from the band. So he starts recording songs with Nigel. And then in February 2004, he goes back to David Kahn and works with David Kahn for a while on what will become Memory Almost Full. It isn't until April 2004 that he gets back to work with Nigel on Chaos and Creation. And then, of course, continues that until he finishes it. So he's got memory almost full, kind of going in the background throughout all of this. I think that's awesome. And look, we're doing that as consumers, right? So we know the projects as they've been titled. But, you know, you wonder what was going on in Paul's head. Do you think he abandoned Khan and then he went to Godrich and was like, I can't work with this guy. And then he abandoned that to go back? I mean, maybe at one time he had it in mind that it would be one of those multi-producer albums. I wonder as we dig into this if we'll find the point where it's like, oh, this is why. Here's an idea. Maybe it was a sop to his band. It was sort of, I'm going to make this album with Godrich without you guys, but don't worry, we'll be working on an album together with David Kahn at the same time. Right. Maybe something like that. Right, yeah. Especially, I mean, he's been with those guys longer than he's been with, I think, the Beatles and Wings combined, right? Something along those lines? Yeah. Yeah, he's really worked with them a while. If it's not exactly that, it's got to be close to that. Let's talk about the actual packaging, the the cover itself. Like, how great Hmm. is that album cover? Well, it's just my opinion on this, but uh, this is one of the few later McCartney albums that has a very fine cover. Now, it's not exactly a great work of design. It's rather just a good choice for a photograph. The rest of the album, though, is pretty well designed. I have the recent LP reissue, and that's got some really cool like sketches in it. Beautiful sketch of Paul on one side of the sleeve, mm-hmm. the inner sleeve. The cover photo is done by Mike McCartney, McGear, and that it was originally entitled Paul Under Washing before he retitled it to Our Kid Through Mum's Net Curtains. And so that's at 24th Lynn Road in Liverpool. And so that's, you know, that's where Paul grew up. And on this special edition, you have an ambigram of Paul's name, which is, you know, you've, you flip it 180 degrees. It's the same backwards and forwards. So, yeah, a lot of thought, a lot of attention to detail, not only went into this music, went into the packaging, it went into the marketing. And we'll get to this in the end. You know, during the kit section, I had said, this is a platinum record. Well, I mean, worldwide, it did over a million. It was gold basically everywhere but France. This record sold in 2005. This is great. This is good stuff yeah. Paul McCartney. 
So in a bid to stop the album leaking onto the file sharing networks of the time, because you have to remember this is pre-Spotify. This is pre-Apple Music. This is iTunes still. You have to buy songs. They issued promotional copies with the title album, and then the artist's name is Pete Mitchell. (laughs) So can you imagine being a journalist? Pete Mitchell, who the hell is this? (laughs) I guess I'll listen to this. Oh, wait, it's one of Paul McCartney's best albums. Wow. Ah. Great. (laughs) So the record sold 357,000 copies in the USA in the first 12 weeks. It debuted at number six in the Billboard 200. Number six with 91,000 copies. Nominated for two Grammys, Album of the Year, and Best Pop Vocal Album. This is unbelievable, especially coming off of driving rain. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you say? Shall we drop the needle on this thing? Side A, track one, fine line. One, two. So the first quote I pulled from Paul, I just sat down at the piano and started that kind of chuggy thing, keeping it very simple. And that's absolutely true. One thing I found when I was digging around that this song actually really closely resembles the Peggy Lee hit from 1947, It's a Good Day. I'll see about digging that up for the listeners. Have you heard it? Yeah, I have. It's very close. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Okay, I will definitely include that here. Yes, it's a good day for singing a song And it's a good day for moving along Yes, it's a good day, how could anything be wrong? A good day from morning to night And it's a good day for shining your shoes And it's a good day for losing the blues you know, that's a bit of an aside. I mean, I'm, nobody's faulting Paul for all music is derivative. You're just, you're copying your heroes. Things go in, they come out. It's cool. But yeah, take a listen to that. How do you feel about Fine Line? Fine Line's pretty good. It's a straight up, well, it's, it's sort of a straight up rock song, but it has these interesting chromatic passages, those instrumental passages. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that that came from Godrich too. There's this story here that Paul had played a, a wrong note. He'd played an, it was supposed to be an F sharp and he went to an F. And that was enough to kind of change the harmony. Yes. And Nigel said, yeah, let's go with that. Paul, come listen to this. This actually yes. sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's a good example of Nigel actually making a tweak to the harmony of the song. Yes. I think that passage is part of what makes that song. 
that's an excellent part to that song. This is one of the. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this a McCartney solo? Is this is him on everything? I'm pretty sure. This is him on everything except for the strings, which are by the Millennia Ensemble. I love this tune. And the lyrics, you could say it's sort of like a prodigal son sort of story. You know, come home, brother, all is forgiven. I mean, I love these lines, the recklessness and courage, chaos. I mean, it's where you get the title of the album, Chaos and Creation. He seems to be saying it's not that hard to to just push it a little too far (laughs) and find yourself in the wrong place. Right. I mean, this song hit number 20 in the UK. It was a single. I remember driving to, when you bought music at stores, CDs at stores, driving to buy this CD single. And on the CD single, it was Fine Line, Comfort of Love, Growing Up Falling Down, and just being like, wow, I cannot wait for this record to come out. Well, Fine Line was also on a car commercial, was it not? I believe so, yes. Yeah, I remember getting a little tired of the song because it was getting a lot of play and it was on TV too. So at the time, I I got a little sick of it. But you know what? There's nothing really to get sick of. It's a good little song, good little melody, interesting lyrics, a really confident vocal performance from Paul on this. And it's nice and short. Three minutes, five seconds. Yes. What a great way to start this record out. This is the first time on this album that we will hear a string arrangement by Joby Talbot, who did a lot of the string arrangements on here for the Millennia Ensemble. Actually, Joby Talbot gets a little call out on Chaos and Creation at Abbey Road. At the end, during the, the making a song, making a loop section of the show, he actually hands Joby Talbot one of the instruments and says, ah, here's our arranger. I'm sure you can handle one of the instruments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, track two, How Kind of You. What do you think of this one, Ryan? This is one of the slow growers for me. And this you'll hear this a lot for me where it's like, I didn't like this one. And then as I listen to the record as a record, it's like, wow, this is something special. This was one of those tracks that we, Paul brought in as like a rock and roll song. And then Godrich got involved and was like, no, we're going to do something different. And maybe you can speak to some of the music technology and the production on this. Yeah, there's some great stuff going on. And if you really want to get a little insight into this track, I just mentioned the chaos and creation at Abbey Road. You can see Nigel actually performing the tape loops in that special. There's also a little side special that I think I think is separate from the main chaos and creation at Abbey Road, where they go into the studio and show some of these things mm-hmm. as well. Those, those are both on YouTube. But basically, Nigel had set up the harmonium. They'd recorded this static harmonium, just playing long chords, and then they looped the chords. And so Nigel had it set up so that each chord was looping on its own channel, on its own mixer channel. And furthermore, he had a, a few like piano loops and other things. And he just performs the chord changes by bringing the faders up and down as needed. So he's he's got it in his head where every chord is and pulls the necessary fader up. And sometimes you hear these fun sort of blurry chords as one is fading into the other, 
right? Yeah. They overlap each other. So yeah, it's a really cool effect. It's fun to watch him do it live. That really gives you some insight into what he's bringing to this because he is performing all of that while Paul's on guitar. Right. The quote is, he put a harmonium in there, so it became like a limbo land, like an Indian piece. That's from Paul. How kind of you to think of me When I was out of sorts It really meant a lot to be In someone else's thoughts Someone else's mind Someone else's kind As you The thoughtfulness you showed has made A difference in my life I won't forget how unafraid You were that long dark night I thought that I was lost I thought I'd never find A someone quite as kind and so the, the lyrics are inspired by Paul's old, and this, those are his words, his older English friends. So like instead of saying, thanks a lot, they'd say, how kind of you. You know, some people think this song is about Linda. I don't know how much of that I want to play on this episode. Like, is this about Linda? Is this about Heather? It's all about all of it. It's, it's just a songwriter. He's going to write what he knows. Yeah, I actually find that the combination of the the understated, all-too-polite lyrics with the rather dark, sort of static sound of the music is very eerie. Yeah. The, it, you, know, you could put these lyrics to some other music, and it would be possibly the cheesiest song ever written. It wouldn't make any sense, really. But when you hear this person, the speaker of this song, who really can't quite articulate their feelings of gratitude or their need for someone to help them out... And you hear them struggling to express that through this overly mannered language. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And the music tips you off, especially the instrumental sections, tip you off that something much darker is actually going on here. Like the speaker of the song is actually really going through something. Yeah, for sure. And I love the fact that this is, Paul's on everything. I mean, except for the, the loop stuff, you know, it's just. Yeah, except for the loops. That's Nigel looping things that Paul played. So even the loops were generated by Paul. By the way, Paul also plays a flugelhorn on this track. Kind of cool. Wow, that is really cool. As I was counted out So a couple of the lines here that maybe I had a problem with is sorts and thoughts. He like they're set up to rhyme and they don't, and I think that kind of 
that like, hit my brain in a certain way, and I was like, ah, oh, this song is garbage. But you don't like a forced rhyme. I don't love a forced rhyme. I will. Mm. I can see how if it was like the more rock and roll version of the song, you could just let that sneak by. But it's because it is so bare. But you know what? The production's so great on this song. I don't even care anymore. It's we're gonna get ought and support as a rhyme later in the album. Similar kind of thing. That's true. I do love you know, how kind of you to stick by me during this final bout and listen to the referee as I was counted out. It was like, mm-hmm. what great imagery. <laughs> Paul McCartney yeah. knocked down in the ring, you know. Fascinating song. And by the way, a good choice for second track on the album. One of the longer, more subdued songs, like hitting us right out of the gate with that. Yeah, I thought that this one would have been later in the record, but there it is, and I'm, I'm happy with it. Like so many girls, Jenny Wren could sing, but a broken heart took a song away. Like the other girls, Jenny Wren took wing, she could see the So track three, Jenny Wren, the sequel to Blackbird, apparently. Yeah, wonderful little song. Wonderful little record. I hear Calico Skies in there, and I understand it's like the whole marketing thing on it. It's like, oh, it's kind of ha- it has that finger style that is similar to Blackbird. But there's definitely some Calico in there. And, you know, this one was written in the vastness of a canyon near L.A., this quote from Paul, I wanted to go and play my guitar in the great outdoor, getting away from the traffic and everything. And the name is inspired by a Dickens novel, Our Mutual Friend, which apparently he had read but forgotten about. In Paul's words, Jenny Wren is a really cool little girl who's sort of magical, who sees the good things. A wren is one of my favorite birds, the little English bird. To me, it was just something to do with Blackbird. And this is the song that gave him the Grammy nomination in 2007. Best male vocal. Yeah, apparently the name comes from the Charles Dickens, but the character doesn't. He made up his, right. own, his own Jenny Wren. Well, I said so earlier, but I just think this song is quite harmonically sophisticated. It's kind of doing this back and forth between major and minor thing that's mm-hmm. a bit ominous sounding. It's a, it's a darker song than Blackbird. Yes, and I mean, and to add to that, to all of that, is Pedro from Ravi Shankar's band, Pedro Ustache, and he plays his duduk, yeah. the traditional Armenian woodwind instrument, similar to a large pipe and made out of apricot wood. What a lovely sound. Supposedly one of the oldest reed instruments in the world. I didn't know that, wow. And this is used very tastefully here. You can see that the usual ornamentations that would apply on an instrument like this are being used faithfully, but it's not 
being used tastelessly to bring some Armenianness to the track or anything like that. It's sure. used in a kind of in a kind of culturally neutral way that I think it always struck me as having an English sound to it the way it works here. Right. That's one take and no reverb. And so Pedro said to Paul after they performed it, he's like, oh, I can't wait to hear it with the rest of the band. And Paul's like, No, that's that's it. <laughs> that's I want it to sound like two friends playing together in a pub. And it does. Apparently, what, the guitar is tuned to D? It's tuned down a whole step? Okay. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, maybe I wish he hadn't done that, since I was just saying earlier with Kit that the song really needed to be up about a whole step. There you go. Maybe he had written it, and in the studio, because isn't that the yesterday trick where mm, yeah. it's fingered in G? No, it's, it's a trick. But people use all the time but yeah. it's f you know so either with capo or tuning down yeah people do that all the time otherwise all your songs are in guitar keys you know <laughs> you gotta mix it up somehow but yeah that song is excellent great great track Track four, At the Mercy. This is where I really start to perk up, and I'm like, wow, this record is really chugging right along. This is a tune that Paul wrote on a Sunday and brought it in for that Monday session, and we had just, you know, earlier in the episode, we discussed, you know, Nigel's reaction. He loved it. So you have James Gadson on drums and Jason Faulkner on electric guitar along with the Millennia Ensemble for strings. So it may sound like a Paul solo, but there's... Nigel started to bring in some players. Yeah, Nigel wanted to have some of his own people in the room, especially Jason Faulkner. And this Jason Faulkner is a multi-instrumentalist who plays, who expertly plays quite a few nice parts on this album. Do we take a moment to talk about Faulkner? He's contributed to the Jellyfish. He's contributed to Beck's work. R. Stevie Moore, who I'm like a pretty big fan of, they did a record in 2017 called Make It Be. That's pretty good. He's done work with Noel Gallagher. There's this band called The Grays that if you can track this record down, it's excellent. And there was Faulkner, mm. John Bryan, Buddy Judge, and Dan McCarroll. And John Bryan, who has just gone on to do so much excellent scoring work. 
I guess the point is that these are real players, real L.A., high-class, world-class, top-of-the-charts players. And so yeah. maybe that adds to the weight of this record. So we have James Faulkner on classical guitar and piano on some of these songs, electric guitar and others. And on At the Mercy, we have him on electric guitar, yes. along with James Gadsden's drums and, again, the Millennia Ensemble on strings. Everything else, Paul, including a couple cello notes, apparently. Another interesting arrangement by Joby Talbot. He did the strings for this one. At the mercy, at the mercy, at the mercy of a busy road. Who can handle such a heavy load? At the mercy, at the mercy, at the mercy of a busy day. We can think of nothing more to say If you show me love, I won't refuse I know you'd never make me choose Between the love I've got and the love I'd lose Sometimes I'd rather run and And then the ending. At the mercy of a busy day, I can think of nothing more to say. And then the track's just over. <laughs> I, always, I always felt like, wow, it's like almost a fourth wall breakthrough where he's saying, I yeah. got nothing to say, song's done. So hats off to that moment for sure. So some very interesting harmony in this song, interesting chords. It's worth going to a piano if you're a musician and working through some of these chords because it never quite goes where you expect it to. And he's often using inversions rather than root position chords, so everything sounds a little a little contingent. Yes, right. At the mercy, at the mercy, at the mercy of a busy day, I can think of nothing more to say. Well, I can think of nothing more to say either. Shall we go to the next track? I've been waiting on the other side For your friends to leave so I don't have to hide I prefer they didn't know So I've been waiting on the other side For your friends to go I've been sliding down a slippy slope I've been climbing up a slowly burning rope But the flame is getting low I've been waiting on the other side For your friends to go Track 5, Friends to Go The apparently tribute to George Harrison song Where Paul literally said, George could have written this If nobody had ever said that, I would have never thought that but as we discussed with Kit, like, it's like a, you said it's a 60s Harrison. That's right, yeah. Some great lyrics. I've been climbing up a slowly burning rope. <laughs> That's great. Man. Great line. Someone else can worry about me. I've spent a lot of time on my own. So that reminds me of some of the stuff you hear on New, 
where Paul is, you know, talking about picking up cigarette packs on a bus. You know, the, the, there's all these moments where Paul is just focused and alone and just observing. I think that's kind of why you get that George Harrison tribute sound, because he's, he's just maybe thinking about his life as a younger man. Well, the song has an interesting conceit, waiting for your friends to get out of here, right? So he doesn't like someone's friends in this song? Yeah, he doesn't want to put on the phoniness, I guess, when you go up and approach a group of people. He's waiting for those people to go so he can just be the person he is with whomever he's addressing. Yeah, so he's having a, a problem getting this person alone, and he doesn't like the people or is uncomfortable around the people that he or she normally associates with. Because it isn't clear to me that this song is aimed at a woman, necessarily. No, and I don't really read it like that. Yeah, me neither. And this could this could just tie into his celebrity, where he's just like mm. waiting for the people to leave so he can approach whoever his friend is. Maybe the, oh, I guess it could be young Paul. Paul's been famous for a very long time. But like, I'm waiting for all year. For, I'm over on the other side of the road. I can see you. You can't see me, whether it's literal or not. Although we've all had the experience of just wanting to get someone alone. Right. You know. Very true. Yeah. It does have a lot of George Harrison type harmony in it. Some George Harrison chord changes, these like passing augmented chords and things like that. It's subtle, but it's got a bit of a George Harrison-y kind of chord structure. Mm -hmm. I can see that. Yeah. Right. And another really beautiful melody. By the way, these are all really finely constructed melodies everyone on this album yes i think that's that's one reason this album is so easy for me to to like someone else can worry about me spend a lot of time on my own spent a lot of time on my own i've been waiting on the other side Yeah, I love the background stuff he does near the end, where it's like the third half. Friends to go, friends to go, all that stuff. It really feels like McCartney craftsmanship, especially on this track. Good, solid acoustic guitar work. Bass is nice. This is Paul on everything. This is one of the... That's correct. And you can't really tell the difference when it's just Paul or if there's other other players. Well, hell, we talked about that back on our McCartney 1 episode, like how much Maybe I'm Amazed sounds like a band. It really does. Yeah, Friends to Ghost really sounds like a band. He's really good at this. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you care to sit with me For a cup of English tea Very twee, very me Any sunny morning What a pleasure it would be Chatting so delightfully Nanny bakes, fairy cakes Every Sunday morning Miles and miles of English garden Stretching past the willow tree Lines of hollyhocks and roses Listen most attentively Okay, so moving along to English tea seems to be one that splits listeners. Yeah, this is one where I remember being like, man, this is hard to listen to. And 
It's a palate cleanser. We just went through some heavy stuff. I mean, these are some serious yeah. topics. These are some great lyrics. These are some of these are very serious songs. Then he's like, "It's just hello, I'm from England town now," you know, and it's <laughs> it's a great song. It's a well done composition. I think the lyrics are great. And yeah. again, he's talking about his older English friends. The quote is, "There's one particular old English person I'm thinking of." who instead of saying, do you want a cup of tea, might say, would you care for a cup of tea? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's still his quote, it's just the way they say it, and I love that. And so I really went to town <laughs> on the whole fruity way of talking. It's supposed to be a bit funny. Yeah, it's supposed to be a bit of a satire. When I had heard it originally, I thought he was like dead serious, like, bop, 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 bop. It's like, oh, no, he's in on it. This is kind of with a wink, and it, it just makes it that much better for me. Yeah, I think this is a very well-written song. You can paint with a broad brush and say, well, it's more granny music, I suppose. But it's a type of granny music we haven't heard from Paul before, actually. This, right. this particular take on it, we really haven't heard before. So it's like the kind of thing you might have heard in the late 60s, honey pie type stuff. But it really is a different take. Paul does some yeah. cool stuff here. He plays all the instruments except for the stuff played by the Millennia Ensemble, once again arranged by Joby Talbot. But Paul plays uh, that little flute solo. That's him. And he actually provided the tubular bells at the end, which gives it a nice distinctive sound at the ending there. Love that. Paradventure. But that's taken from Dickens. Means perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> or perchance. Just, just a yeah. fancy way to say that. I guess if you see the, the whole thing as a spoof or a goof, like, it's really fun. And he comes right out and says the song is modeled partly on Noel Coward. He's who I was thinking of when I wrote the song. And we just had room with a view, yeah. So maybe he had that still running around in his head and wanted to do one. Somebody gave him a box set and he had just... <laughs> <laughs> So that brings us to the last song on side A of the LP, and that would be Too Much Rain. Wonderful song. What do you think of this one? Unbelievably good. I love this track. Laugh. When your eyes are burning Smile when your heart is filled with pain Sigh as you brush away your sorrow Make a vow that it's not gonna happen again not right in one life too much rain you know I think I can demonstrate to people using this song the kind of melodic writing that tends to appeal to me because this is I guess you would call this a multi-limbed phrase structure where each phrase he sings is different from the last phrase and heading to another place harmonically. Rather than ever just 
turning back around and repeating something. It keeps going to a next phrase, and each phrase gets you closer to the chorus, and the last line of the verse elides perfectly into the chorus, yeah. etc. This is the kind of writing I like, you know? Right. It's not right in one life to Well, it's inspired by Charlie Chaplin's Smile, which is written for the film Modern Times. You know, at the end of Modern Times, it's a movie from 1936, which is a very good movie if you haven't seen it. You know, the tramp, Charlie Chaplin, he sits beside a, a homeless orphan, Paulette Goddard. And she, so she's on the side of the road in, in the dawn, and she starts crying that there's, you know, there's no use in trying. And he says, buck up. Never say die. We'll get along. She keeps fighting, and that's you know that's that's where this whole song comes from. This whole idea, and it really is that. I mean, that's it. Basically, is just a reinterpretation of exactly that. At least the beginning of of Paul's melody has a little resemblance to Smile. I'll play a little bit of Smile here for people. Do you believe Charlie Chaplin wrote that? It wasn't just that he wrote a song. He wrote the soundtracks for all his movies. They just don't make them like that no more, man. Man, I'm nah. <laughs> no, they don't. So Paul, he's particularly proud of his bass playing on this one. He said the slides and the slurs are from playing electric guitar, but he just reappropriated them for the bass. He's, he says, I love the sub hook. It's something I'm very proud of. And that's always been one of my favorite things about Paul McCartney, all those little bass flourishes where it's like he'll be singing and then when he's not singing he's just above the 12th fret <laughs> just yeah. on a riff yeah yet another track that is paul on every instrument too everything i'll take it aside to say this 
I love Paul McCartney's drumming so much. He just has this groove, <laughs> this feel. And sometimes it feels slightly like it's all going to fall apart, but it never does. <laughs> and I guess this song was written to cheer Heather up? Yes. Well, she needs, she needed a lot of cheering up, apparently. From, And I, you and I discussed this before the episode. We don't want to tell a lot of tales out of school about Heather, but it sounds like that relationship was extremely troubled, and then troubled to the point of where a lot of that stuff made it into the press. I don't know what's factual or not. It's just yeah. it seems like a wild time in Paul McCartney's life. Some wild stories, yeah. So yeah, and that's you know we got all the way through the A side, and what an excellent, excellent time that was. You f- you flip it over, and you're face to face with track one or track eight of the CD, "A Certain Softness," written on a boat trip in Greece. A certain softness in her eyes. Fascinates me more than I ever thought it would. A certain softness, more than I ever thought it could. A certain softness in her eyes got me hooked, got me hooked. A kind of sadness in a smile captivates me. Surer than anything that's sure Surer than anything before The kind of sadness in a smile Got me hooked Got me hooked Got me hooked I really like this song. Yeah, it reminds me of Distractions. Well, and, and I love her. And... Yeah, he's done this Latin thing a number of times. And he manages to do a little different take on it each time. So this doesn't strike me as a retread. This is really quite different from Distractions or And I Love Her or whichever ones I'm forgetting, because there are others. It's a much darker kind of harmony in this song. Yeah. Even though it has the very pretty uh, B section, most of it's rather dark. Right. Maybe a bit more of a bossa nova type of, uh, of harmony there. That line, a kind of sadness in her smile, captivates me surer than anything that's sure. Wow. What a... <laughs> that's a peek into his mind. Like, yeah. he's attracted to the sadness in the woman. I mean, it's obviously Heather Mills, but... And what about this line? If I could even find the words to tell her, I wouldn't want to anyway. Because that would only break the spell, and you know very well I couldn't betray her. How about that line? (laughs) Wow. Fascinating. So we have some really great Latin-style percussion on this from Joey Warrinker, playing bass drum, bongos, and shaker. And we also have Jason Faulkner playing beautiful classical guitar on this one. Which I thought was Paul. It sounds like how Paul plays, but... He also plays classical guitar. He plays Peterson classical. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So there's a little story where the gong that's on the track, Mm -hmm. Paul stole it out of the studio next door before the band next door, and I don't know what band it was, noticed, got it in there, played it, overdubbed it, snuck it back. (laughs) I love that impish playfulness he still has. It seems like he's always, he never really lost it. A certain softness in her eyes Got me hooked, got me hooked 
The next track, track nine, second track on the B-side, Riding to Vanity Fair. Now, this is something special. Yes. I guess maybe this is the standout for me on the album. It's a brutal, brutal song. This is a track that they brought in as a rock number. They slowed it down. This is where that whole quote comes from. The Godrich said, you know that song we're doing the other day? I think it's crap. The two storm fronts that were Nigel and Paul hit. And this is what came out of that. Some people think it's about Heather. So another possibility is that the song is about a falling out with McCartney's longtime publicist of 15 years, Jeff Baker, who Paul fired sometime around 2005. It was rumored that Baker was writing a tell-all book about McCartney, and Paul felt betrayed. And there was this incident where, you know, a lot of these stories, you don't know, you don't really know what happened. But like where Jeff set Paul up to be like, I wouldn't say accosted, but just kind of like many journalists kind of went in to where he was sitting, and he didn't want these journalists around. And it kind of led to this rift between Jeff and Paul. And... He fired him. And I remember reading that online at the time that, you know, Jeff Baker was fired. I think he was an addict of some kind or he like had some problems. But, you know, like I said before, songwriters, it's not always literal. Sometimes they take multiple things in their lives and combine them and weave them into a story. And that's how they get it all out. I, I think it's more of a Heather Mills thing. But then there's, again, there's the, the whole English, in English lit Okay, so there are a few competing possibilities for what Vanity Fair could actually refer to here. When I first saw the song title, I thought of the Thackeray novel. And I knew of the Thackeray novel because I was into Kubrick as a kid, so I saw Barry Lyndon, so I looked up Thackeray, and I saw that he had a novel called Vanity Fair. But it turns out that Thackeray's use of Vanity Fair comes from something earlier, from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, a dissenter allegory first published in 1678. Vanity Fair refers to a stop along the Pilgrim's Route, a never-ending fair held in a town called Vanity, which is meant to represent man's sinful attachment to worldly things. So Thackeray was referring to that in his title. So that actually does jibe with the song, where it's sort of a song about someone who's like a social climber, right? Yes. They're more concerned about their own social status than friendship or loyalty. Do you want to tell Andrew Grant Jackson's take on it? Hold on, let me just pull this out. Mills did actually give an interview to the U.S. magazine Vanity Fair in 2002, and it was just a few weeks before their June 11th wedding, around the same time as an incident on June 2nd, when McCartney yelled that he didn't want to marry her anymore, and he threw her 25 thousand dollar engagement ring out of a hotel window which was apparently found with a metal detector and so paul you know realizes that mills is like a more unpredictably she's just an unpredictable person than he originally perceived he's talking about how he has to like choose his words carefully and to be gentle and try to laugh off or put downs but you know he's finally decided he's had enough and he wanted to have a true friendship, but she's not open to it. And so, In other words, the title could refer to an actual ride to Vanity Fair, the magazine. Right. I love this. 
it could refer to the modern magazine, it could refer to the Thackeray novel, which is about a social climber, or it could refer to what the Thackeray novel referred to, <laughs> which was about a an endless fair of people who were, you know, right, selfish and greedy. Yeah, critics were really surprised at how honestly, you know, air quotes, the sappy one dealt with this crumbling relationship. There was a time when every day was young, the sun would always shine. We sang along when all the songs were sung, relieving every line. So it's the longest song on the album, beats out How Kind of You by just a little bit, and it has this feeling of weight to it. It takes its time. The plotting quality of it does give you that feeling of being like in a carriage approaching a fair. And the lyrics are bitter in a way that we've ra- rarely seen from Paul McCartney. Yes, very, very bitter. The quote I pulled is, you're not aware of what you put me through, but now the feeling's gone, but I don't mind. Do what you have to do. You don't fool anyone. And that's pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Heather Mills had said, you know, when, when she married him, she didn't realize how boring Paul was. He would just mm-hmm. like go to the bar with a roadie and they didn't have much of a social life. She wanted to go to parties and be out and just do stuff that was fun. And that just sounds like a miserable relationship all in. Yeah. Sounds awful. Yeah, the end of the song... And I keep hoping for friendship, but I wouldn't dare to presume it was there while you were writing to Vanity Fair. It's really rough stuff, man. Yeah. So another wonderful production. This time we have Paul on most of the instruments, except that we have the strings this time performed by the Los Angeles music players arranged by David Campbell. And we also have James Gadson on drums. You lift up my spirits. You shine on my soul Whenever I'm empty You make me feel whole I can rely on you To guide me through Any situation You hold up a sign that reads Follow me i 
So, moving on to Follow Me. Follow Me, the quasi-religious yet uplifting McCartney track. You know, so this one was premiered during the 2004 summer tour at Glastonbury. And I remember seeing that online. I remember they had a stream of it. And I, it was, oh, it's a new song. You know, and he played it. I was like, wow, that's pretty good for a new track. It took another whole year for like the record. Or was it more than that? It took a long time for it to come out. I was like, dang. Yeah, so this was the first song recorded for Chaos and Creation, September 2003. And it was recorded with the Paul McCartney band. Brian Ray actually plays acoustic guitar, and then the rest of it is uh, Rusty and Abe Laboreal. And they did keep that arrangement, although Paul may have redone a few things along the way. Yes. But that's pretty much the only appearance of Paul's band on this album. Let's see, we have Abe Laboreal on percussion and tambourine, but Paul played drums on it. Wow. Probably nixed Abe's drums and did his own. Yes. Yeah, that must yeah. be it. You to guide me through any situation. You hold up the sign that reads, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Follow me. Hold up the sign. I, I always thought Paul did it so he would actually, either people were doing this or he was hoping he would get people to actually hold up signs at his shows, you know. <laughs> I think it perfectly yeah. sets up the next track, which is a barn burner in my opinion. Uh-huh. Promise to you, girl. Looking through the backyard of my life. Sweep the fallen leaves away Like the sun that rises every day We can chase the dark clouds from the a quote from Paul. It's a little two-part piano thing. The right hand is doing the melody and the bass has got a definite part instead of just vamping away. So it was just like a little mathematical problem trying to work out how I could do this. So we saw this on Lady Madonna or even some of the stuff on Flaming Pie. And so Paul says, I could hear the Funk Brothers putting a backing track to that. Originally that was slightly less positive. I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't We Know How to Save the World. So this is like a, like a dark little, I mean, Lady Madonna is kind of a dark track lyrically, you know, the single mother trying to raise all the yeah. all the children. But yeah, this is a fully Paul solo record, has all those little Moog synthesizer and those little effects near the end. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, and it's something of a multi-part song too. You know, you have the looking through the backyard of my life part at the beginning you have the little, it always sounds like Queen to me a little bit with the multi-tracked vocals. And then you have the kind of straight rock promise to you girl part, which turns out not to be that straight rock. After a few bars, it goes off into chromatic territory. 
Yes. Yeah, it does sound like Queen, and, and I thought that too. So how long is this song? This one's 310. So really tightly constructed little multi-part song. Really cool. Yeah, it sounds both longer and shorter than 310 to me. I don't even know how to describe that. It goes by so fast but because of the parts. You really feel like you're getting a whole meal out of that song instead of just like a verse chorus. Well, I notice a lot of these songs are that way. It's a very full three or three and a half minutes that you get. Yeah, really great Moog on this one, by the way. There's Moog on other songs on here too, but th- this song, it really sticks out in a cool, like retro 70s way. I remember at the time being like, that was my favorite of the collection the first time I heard the record. It's like, ooh, that is a, you know, you, Paul's back, the thing you're not supposed to say. That's, but that's how I felt. Like, ooh, that actually feels like a Paul McCartney song. This never happened before. Track 12. And actually the second song recorded for the album. Recorded in September 2003, right after Follow Me, apparently. So Follow Me, Fire the Band, and then start This Never Happened Before. Yeah, so Paul's getting a massage, and I guess he listens to his own (laughs) music when he's getting a massage, or at least this was on the mix of what Paul was listening to. And... The masseuse loved the song so much that Paul gave her the demo tape to play at her wedding. And she actually didn't leak the song, and she sent it back to him. I guess, what a lovely story. Yeah. So this was planned for a single, which would have included three other songs, A Modern Dance, haven't heard it, Watching My Fish Drown, how about that title, haven't heard it, And then Perfect Lover, which is an early version of ever-present past. Yeah, I would love to hear those, but I could not locate them. Well, in a few years when we get the $600 Chaos and Creation in the Backyard Deluxe Box Set Archive Edition, you will. (laughs) The arranger Joby Talbot, who, by the way, he does all the arrangements except except for Vanity Fair. He had a comment on this song, since this was the first one that he did with Paul and Nigel. I was brought on board through Nigel Godrich. He thinks about strings in a different way than I would normally think about an orchestral arrangement. He thinks of them occupying a small space in songs. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. 
they ended up doing the string arrangement twice, recording it twice, because they had originally done it at AIR, and Nigel thought it was too bright, and he wanted to go back to RAK, where he really knew how to do things. Kind of his home studio. Yeah, so the Millennia Strings had to re-record this one after the first try at AIR. Talk about attention to detail. Well, this is a beautiful song. Good old-fashioned Paul McCartney love ballad. Absolutely a highlight from an album that's already entirely a highlight. So, Paul has a nice little comment about this song. Yes, yeah, sort of addressing the comments I'd been making earlier about how this the, the melodies really flow and go somewhere on this album. Paul said the following about this never happened before. It's always a big help if you get a nice little chord sequence and the opening chords to the verse of that go a nice place. So they settle you down with your melody and you feel like you're really going somewhere. And that's true with this melody. It ends up, it starts out in a minor place and ends up in a major place by the end of the verse melody. Then he does that little shift into the, the bridge. This is the way it should be. This is the way it should be for lovers. They shouldn't go it alone. It's not so good when you're on your own. I suppose the lyrics on this one are maybe they're the most generic on the album it's just it's more about the feeling than the words it's just it feels great little drum machine little piano big old string section it's perfect us right into the last track people get ready yes people get ready anyway the randy newman-esque closer to this record i guess the rumor is is that while at ocean way paul waited hours for a call from heather mills that never came and you know chris just said people get ready that's an impression song maybe we should just play let's do it Get on board. All you need is faith to hear the dealer's heart. 
whether Paul was intentionally quoting that or whether it just crept in. I mean, the chord changes are stock chord changes. Anybody could stumble on those, but he really kind of quotes the melody itself. So, eh, it's a little close. Yeah, so Paul's sitting there. He said, I was... I was getting this feeling as if it was the deep south of America, like Charlestown, Savannah, something about the chords, I think. There was just something reminding me almost sort of Randy Newman kind of thing about it. And, you know, so Andrew Grant Jackson goes on to say, you know, the 60s songs that Paul had written about his dissatisfaction in relationships were like, if you blow it with me, baby, I got a million more out there. (laughs) But this is more of a humble statement, you know, Paul saying like, please call me. Why won't you call me? I, I, need, I need to hear from you. It's a devastating way to end an album that's already kind of like, in parts, a bummer. Well, if you wait around a few seconds at the end of it, you get, I've only got two hands. That's a more upbeat ending, I guess. So yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So it's the three instrumentals after Anyway Plays. And so Paul's co It was like a 30-second gap. Yes. And Paul's like, I'll do three just to show him, you know, Nigel, that I can do this. And so he did these three instrumentals, and they were meant to put one of them at the top of the record. But instead of doing that, they just put, them, put all three at the end. So it, it wasn't meant to open with a fine line. It would have been one of the three of those as kind of like the intro and then fine line hits so this is more like a bonus track hidden bonus track i don't think of it as the real end of the album i think of anyway as the end of the album yeah yeah i actually like all that hidden cd track stuff i wish they just stopped doing that just (laughs) and this is another one that is all paul except for the millennia ensemble That's it. Chaos and creation in the backyard. At least the main album stuff. Yeah, what a good album. Excellent album. Do you want to dive into some of these extras? Yeah, let's do it. The first I have on this list is Comfort of Love, which is a B-side to Fine Line. One of the wildest parts about this track is like the the old-fashioned metronome is the rhythm section. Oh, isn't that great? Yes. Great piano work. And, you know, the overall message of the song, it's like, you don't need money to be happy. You don't need, you just need the comfort of, you don't need a house. You don't need all these things, a car. You just need love. This was also one of the first ones recorded for the album, September 2003. So around the same time as yeah. this never happened before, the one we were just talking about a moment ago. And yeah, it has that little metronome. It's also got a spin it, little harpsichord that we've talked about before on the podcast. 
I think this is a fine little song. Very short and very modest, but you could throw this on the album. It's so upbeat. Maybe you put it next to one of the other upbeat songs like Follow Me or Friends to Go. Like sneak it in, and it could have been a 14-track album with this one. But you could say that for any of these extra tracks, really. Yeah, they're all pretty good. Once through the time when I thought if I had a house, I'd be happy. The once through the time when I thought if I had a car, I'd be made. One by one, I achieved my ambitions, but it didn't feel like I wanted to feel. It didn't feel like I wanted it to feel. I didn't feel like I wanted to feel. Speaking of good extra tracks, Growing Up, Falling Down. Wow. What wow, a, indeed. What a tune. Pedro back on the Duduk, and also he plays a didgeridoo. This also has James Gadson on the drums, Jason Faulkner on classical guitar and piano. I know I said I wasn't going to do this, but here I am doing it. I really think this one's about Linda. It just sounds like it is. Yeah, you think so? He was just thinking about, how do I get back to that? Could be entirely wrong. That's just what I hear. Could be wrong. Well, Pedro says this cool thing about the arrangement. He says the idea that Paul and the producer had was to create a symphony with a group of ethnic wind instruments. That's really a cool idea. They didn't really do that, but I wish they would do that. It's a great idea. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Wow, that would have been wild. I love this use of these instruments in a kind of... Like I said before, culturally neutral sort of way. Just bring them in and let them be part. Sort of like what we heard with the use of sitar on tragedy, where it's not there to symbolize Indianness or anything else. It's just an instrument in the arrangement. It's just a sound or a texture, right? Yeah. You know what else this song reminds me of? What's that? Don't Let It Bring You Down from London Town. Yes. One of the best songs on that record. Yeah, it's got that same, you know, slow triple meter thing going with the flutes, the high falsetto vocal from Paul. Reminds me a lot of that. And Don't Let It Bring You Down has a real dark quality to it that this one shares. I like when Paul goes to that place.
So those last two songs, those are on the Fine Line CD single, Comfort of Love and Growing Up Falling Down. What a great single to have, Fine Line, and those two tracks. So the next track we have is Summer of 59, which was only available on the vinyl edition of the Jenny Wren single. And this is another one of those where it's like, damn, why did this not get on the record? Kind of a Blackpool-type track, huh? Yeah, yeah, just... It's got that early days sound that you hear on new. I would love to just mm-hmm. hear an album of stuff like this. Paul on acoustic guitar doing simple little ditties. Acoustic guitar or piano. And I love that line. He says, some of the girls turned into women. So, you know, implying either some of those women are just eternally kids. Or maybe they died. You know, some of them, some of them didn't make it. And there's just like, it just, I just caught that hearing it again. I was like, what? That's a really clever line. Some of them. So. Yeah, this one's just a couple minutes long. Yeah, 2.11, real quick. Yeah. In and out. Yeah. But great to have for sure. It could have been the Her Majesty for this album, actually. This should have been the bonus track. The Deluxe Her Majesty. Right. <laughs> this song to me is the record cover, the picture. It sounds like that, and it would have been a great way to just tie it all back together by having this be the last track or a bonus track. In the summer of 59, the light shine up to the pavement. Bursting socks and fishnet stockings, dirty combs from mighty homes that girls are chased. And it's all in the name of good taste. So speaking of Jenny Wren, there are two more songs from the Jenny Wren single, This Loving Game and I Want You to Fly. This Loving Game is excellent. You have James Gadsden on drums. And it's another song where you're like, wow, another track that could have made the album. It's a bit more ordinary than most of what's on the album. Kind of mainstream McCartney love song, both lyrics and music, Mm -hmm. I would Mm -hmm. say. It's even got a big fat four over five in it. And those who know what that is know who they are. That's like one of my favorite chords. I prefer two seven over five if I'm going to do it, but it's a real distinctive sound though. It's, you know, kind of marks it as a, an old fashioned pop song. Yes. Yeah. All of that. Mm -hmm. Do I love you half as much as I did Darling, I could hardly love you more. I tried to look for some good advice. Cause we all have to pay the price. But till now, it It's, it's fine. Yeah, no problem with it, really. It's just a little ordinary compared to the rest of the album. And it's actually this and I Want You to Fly. And, mm-hmm. and even as we go down this list, these are ones I just heard, really. I've really studied, like maybe I heard 30 seconds of it years and years ago, but I remember being like, why do I care about B-sides to this album? 
like why am I even interested in that and you know I must say I am rather interested in them now I want you to fly So that leads us to I Want You to Fly, another Jenny Wren yeah. B-side. Gadsen and then Faulkner are back on this mm. track. And I don't, I don't really care too much for it. But again, it's middle of the road, Paul. Yeah, and it has that cool two-part thing going where it starts out as kind of an R&B type thing. Pretty mm-hmm. much straight blues changes, R&B, but with a cool singing style and kind of a cool keyboard thing going. And then in the second half, it turns more into this like psychedelic rock thing with the flange <laughs> up and down. And, you know, I find it pretty entertaining just to groove to. It's not a favorite of the B-sides, but it's fine. Yes. This last one of these, available only on the Japanese pressing of the LP, She Is So Beautiful. Mm. This song was written at a time when Paul was still enchanted by his young bride, Heather. And it's a really beautiful track. And it's just the Millennium Ensemble and Paul. It's very restrained. You know, yes. just, just a few simple chords and the melody is pointed but simple. It's a nice understated love song. Beautiful. Oh, she is so beautiful. Lord, she is so fine. Yes, she is so beautiful. And she says she's mine. For her face it shines. In the morning glow In the outside world Will never know What she means to me And how much I owe to her So it's, it's worth mentioning Jenny Ran Live from Abbey Road was available as a download from paulmccartney.com during this time as like a promo. And 
we can get into that special in a second. But before we do, there's a few other tracks that came out this period. And we finally get to talk about whole life. Released November 2003 on iTunes, and then again in January 2005 on 46664, One Year On. That's an EP. So this is Dave Stewart, and that's the 46664 is an anti-age charity project. This was during Flaming Pie, this started? That's right, yeah. It goes back to Flaming Pie era. It's funny because there's nothing very Dave Stewart sounding about it. No, it sounds like Letting Go or The World Tonight or something. It sounds like The World Tonight, especially, yeah. Uh, pretty good song, though. Pretty good rocker. Yeah, I will great. say that it's uh, a little bit significant to me because it was my first ever iTunes purchase. Wow. I, I signed up with iTunes just to get this song, yeah. There was no... Like announcement. I didn't feel like there was any excitement around it. It was just like you're on iTunes one day and you search Paul as as you would if you're a fan. And then you're like, what is that? What is this? I think I must have heard about it somewhere because I went to iTunes specifically to get it. And so what? It's Rusty, Dave, Abe, Wicks, and Brian Ray. Mm -hmm. That's the band. It's a good rocking track. I don't know much about the lyrics. They seem kind of generic. And it's a good vocal, too. He sounds great on this. So I mentioned these before. A Modern Dance, Watching My Fish Drown, and then Perfect Lover. Those would have been on the This Never Happened Before single that Paul wanted to rush out, but it did not happen. I hope we get those one day. Would love to hear those. But two other tracks that came out this era. So Paul is on a Brian Wilson song from an album called Getting In Over My Head called A Friend Like You. And this was my second ever iTunes purchase. (laughs) (laughs) I bought the whole record, man. Did you? I think I bought the record, but I don't know if I ever got all the way through it. Pretty sure I've got it on my hard drive and I doubt I've ever listened to the whole thing. I actually haven't listened to the whole thing in a long time, but I remember liking some of it. But so I pulled this from us from a Larry King interview with Brian Wilson on August 20th, 2004. So Larry King, how about meeting with Paul McCartney, Brian Wilson? I talked to Paul McCartney over the years, ranging from 1967 to 2004. Larry King, talked to him in person, you met him, and then Brian Wilson, at the Landmine show, he did God Only Knows with me, and I did Let It Be with him. And then I called him about four months ago, asking him, asking him if he would come out and do, sing a song called A Friend Like You, which I wrote for him, and my collaborator wrote for him. And so he goes on, and on and on and on. Larry goes, so you wrote the song, A Friend Like You. 
Yes, and the lyrics were written by Steve. <laughs> so it's like it's like this wild interview. You can find it. And Larry King goes, and so it's you're referencing Paul. And Brian Wilson goes, yes, to Paul. Yes, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, it's that's just not this wild. very helpful. <laughs> yeah, and you're like trying to. It's like okay, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a fun song. It's, I guess they were friends since the 60s and they have birthdays around each other and uh-huh. they both play the bass. The song's cute. I would even say it's cutesy. It really is a song about being buds and, well, we'll just play a little bit of it here. Yeah. Then the next celebrity duet, or however you want to frame it, is George Michael and Paul singing Heal the Pain. Let me tell you a secret, put it in your heart and keep it. Something that I want you to know, do something for me. Listen to my simple story, and maybe we'll have something to show. Tell me you cold on the inside How can the outside world be a place That your heart can embrace Be good to yourself Cause nobody else has the power to make you happy How can I help you? Please let me try to I can heal the pain that you feel I didn't really know the song, and so this was my introduction to the song. And I think it's a beautiful song, and I think Paul sounds great on this version. He sounds really good. He sounds really good. He's double tracking with himself, like laser sharp intonation on the double tracking, and Mm -hmm. just sounding very resonant and and happy in this key, whatever key it is. He sounds comfortable. Look, you, you know, singing next to George Michael is tough. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe that's what it's kind of hard to them. sound good next to George Michael for anybody, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe that's why you know, his competitive edge, as you've seen with Paul. So this was included on a George Michael retrospective, right? George Michael 25. Is that correct? Yeah. In 2008, it was released as a single from what, like, exactly what you just said. So the song itself was on Listen Without Prejudice, right? Yes. And that's from 1991. I mean, it's George Michael writing a song in the Paul McCartney school of songwriting. And then there's Paul on it all those years, 20 years later, whatever it is, singing it with him. And they, they, it's just a bang up job. It's just yeah. excellent. So, I mean, that's it for extras, except for the Chaos and Creation at Abbey Road special, which was a DVD that came with the, was it the deluxe edition of the CD? I remember watching it and being like, not that impressed. 
but I, I watched it again, and I was just mesmerized the whole time. I had a great time with that. What do you think about that special? You know, I'm a an audio teacher myself, and found myself looking at Paul in that special and thinking, he's doing a bang-up job teaching some audio techniques. Yeah, really? He's actually Seriously. really doing a very clear job of explaining what a Mellotron is, showing how you make loops and use them. He has Nigel come out and actually perform the loops from How Kind of You, so you can see mm-hmm. Nigel. And he's got him doing it on the old school Abbey Road mixing board too, which is very yeah. nice, very classy. But yeah, Paul explains a explains and demonstrates a bunch of instruments. And I just thought, wow, this is a really good forum for Paul, like explaining Seriously. things. He's good at it. When he's that guy, you go, oh yeah, that's exactly why he is where he is. Yeah. But when he puts on the PR man, they're like, you're like, what? I don't yeah. believe that. I mean, when he shows off the Bill Black bass and then just tears into that number and walks off ready to do the next thing. It's really badass. <laughs> yeah. In that vest, he's like dressed like Han Solo or yeah. something. Like it's so awesome. Yeah. This special is well worth seeing. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It was shown on BBC two in the UK on December 17th, 2005 and in PBS in the U S on February 27th, 2006 as part of the Performing Arts series, Great Performances. His haunting performance of Band on the Run on Glasses and Harmonium, Yeah, I just forgot about that. It was yeah. just such a shock <laughs> to see that. The supplemental video I mentioned earlier, I believe that's called Creating Chaos at Abbey Road. And it has a few more mm-hmm. performances and it shows Paul and Nigel in the studio a little bit. So that's worth checking out as well. If there's any other highlights, it would be Paul actually plays 20 Flight Rock right-handed. Excuse me, he plays it left-handed, but on a right-handed guitar just to demonstrate what he did when he met John. Really cool. Yeah. He he does that lady, that haunting, slower Lady Madonna, and he introduces it as an old lady in new clothes. You're like, whoa, never heard him say anything like that before. And then on our Flaming Pie episode, we we played some of that Paul demonstrating the Mellotron stuff, and he does it, but he doesn't do it as cartoonish here. Yeah. He does that song, Baby Won't You Come With Me, or whatever it is. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we played that. And then the that's all for now at the end. I thought that was a great way to just to, like you, like you just said, to this is how you multi-track. It also gives you a little insight into just how easy it is for Paul McCartney to make a great sounding record right then. Mm-hmm. Like everything he plays sounds great. You know, the drums sound yeah, great. First, the bass sounds great. He's just doing it take. right there. Like Nigel's first like take. rushing to keep up. So you get the sense that, yeah, this guy can just walk in the studio and start knocking stuff out, you know? And that's what he's known for. That's what you, you see everywhere where it's just like... Bam, bam, bam. Paul is like, like, oh, I love Paul in the studio. He's amazing. You play anything. It's, there you go. There's evidence right there. I didn't mention this before, but there were three singles from Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. That was Fine Line, released August 29th, 2005. Jenny Wren released November 21st, 2005. And then This Never Happened Before, 
which was released with just as a promo, but not with those bonus songs. And that was in 2006, just because they really believed in that song. This record was nominated for Album of the Year, Best Pop Vocal Album, Best Male Pop Vocal Performance, Non-Classical Producer, and then Best Male Pop Vocal Performance. These are Grammy Awards. And it won just for one of those five for Jenny Wren, Best Male Pop Vocal Performance. And so the charts, this thing was, was just about top 20, top 10 everywhere. France, it went three, Italy, Sweden. You can look up all the charts. It's, it didn't do as well as it would have if it was probably released 10 years previously, but it still did very, very well. And like I had said earlier, 1.3 million sales worldwide. Golden US, Canada, UK, Russia, and I have some press. Hey, press. I had said this earlier in the episode, but it bears repeating. Time Magazine said that this is the first Paul McCartney album that matters since the Beatles broke up. Whether or not that's true, we discussed. Entertainment Weekly goes on to say, you're far more likely to play Backyard on a Sunday morning than on a Saturday night. That's Tom Sinclair from September 12, 2005. The Guardian has to say, you know, Paul has grown bitter and it's done him a world of good. (laughs) September 9th, 2005, that's Alexis wrote that for The Guardian. In interviews, McCartney has made the sessions sound like hard work painful, those are quotes, a plunge into the darkness, quotes, like being pulled through a hedge backwards, quotes. (laughs) Goderich first dismissed McCartney's idea to make an Indian-themed album, then dismissed his band, and then started dismissing his songs one by one. It mints an unassuming and idiosyncratic style with which McCartney could see out his career. At last, it seems he's found an answer to the previously imponderable question, now what? Really great. LA Times said, more intimate, but still cautious. Steve Hutchman, September 4th, 2005. The NMA said, sadly as an album, it doesn't quite work. By teaming up with Goderich, McCartney has come out of his safety zone and challenged himself in a way not seen since first solo album back in 1970. But the feeling remains that the one person who could really inspire him to write one final classic record was tragically murdered in 1980. Julian Marshall said that. Oh, I mean, I for think crying that's a bit, out loud. It's a bit, bit harsh, isn't yeah. it? Enemy. Relax, Julian, <laughs> if you're listening. Rolling Stone. Anthony DeCurtis, who actually, you know, we've mentioned him a lot on this show. Right. Chaos and Creation in the Backyard is the freshest sounding McCartney album in years. It is as spare in its way as Driving Rain, his most recent studio effort, but it's more daring, more assured, and more surprising. All of the above means that with a couple of exceptions, Chaos doesn't rock, and that's its most significant drawback. So... And then the last one, Stephen Thomas Erlewine from All Music. The quiet nature of chaos and creation may mean that some listeners will pass it over quickly since it's a grower, but spend some time with the record and it becomes clear 
that McCartney is far from spent as either a songwriter or record maker, and in many ways continues to make some of the best music of his solo career. So there you go. He often comes through for us with a good review. Yes. He's very level-headed in his reviews. He gets it. Okay, so that brings us to an old friend, George Harrison. This will be the last time we check in on George Harrison. We have his last album to talk about just a little bit, Brainwashed from 2002. This is another Jeff Lynne-produced album. Do you have any thoughts on this one, Ryan? When it came out, I thought it was great. And I thought Any Road was great. Yes. Stuck Inside a Cloud is cool. Oh, that's definitely cool. Rising Sun. Rising Sun. That's a good album. It is a good album. Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, though, is my favorite song off the album. But he, you know, that's he an didn't, old he, song. He didn't write it. And again, one, a two, a one, two, three. I don't want you, but I hate to lose you. You got me in between the devil and the deep blue sea. I forgive you Cause I can't forget you You got me in between The devil and the deep blue sea So the album is actually credited as produced by George Harrison, Jeff Lynne, and Danny Harrison. And it actually was recorded over a long span of time I believe Any Road was one of the first ones recorded for it, and that goes all the way back to post-Cloud 9, so 88 period. But George kept doing other projects, so he would keep coming back to this album and tweaking and adding more stuff and adding another song, and then go away from it again. So it didn't get completed until 2002. I, at the time, just didn't care about it at all. It sounded like Cloud 9 to me, And that's not the kind of George Harrison that I was really ever into. Upon revisiting it for this episode, I found that it does not sound that much like Cloud Nine. Actually, quite a bit of it is reminiscent of late 70s George, and that's a good thing. And so I'm not done with this album yet. I think the verdict for me is I'm going to revisit this some more and live with it because what I heard in revisiting it seemed pretty positive to me. Like, I might like this better than Cloud Nine. Yeah, I have to revisit it. I remember when it came out. I definitely remember when it came out. And I'm looking at the album cover here on my computer right now and being like, man, I haven't looked at this in the longest time. You look at all the reviews and like, this is one of George Harrison's best albums. Never slept so little Never smoked so much Lost my concentration I could even lose my touch Talking to myself This album was released November 18th, 2002. 
And so George Harrison actually passed away November 29th, 2001. So this is, you know, this came out after he was gone. I would have liked to see what George Harrison did in the last like 15 years or so. Because I think he would have ended up still working on music. He like had a real problem with music and his fame, it seemed, for a lot of his career. Yeah, you know, he put out Gontrapo in 1982. And then between 1982 and his death in 2001, only two more albums. Yeah, that's a big span. He was always working on projects. He had Dark Horse and some of the films associated with Dark Horse. He had Beatles Anthology to work on. He had other projects. I mean, to have your last two albums be Cloud Nine and Brainwash, that's not that bad. I know you don't really like the sound of Cloud Nine, but it's a huge success for him. Oh, and I like a lot of the songs on it, too. Okay. Well, we thought we'd go out with something special for George. So we're going to treat you to Prince's solo. If you don't know what I mean by Prince's solo, what the heck, man? Look it up. Here it is. Yeah. everyone ryan here just want to take a moment to thank a few of our donors thank you so much for everything that you do if you didn't donate into the show you probably wouldn't even be hearing this episode right now so thank you gary allen c ryan luchuk jay troop liam newton michael platt ken cowley neil ferguson stephen cockcroft jay chris Rennie, Lee Bedow, Elon Schmuel, Cliff Jefferson, Dan Rebellato, Paul Rivard. Thank you all very, very much. We'd also like to take a moment to thank the people that are heavily involved in our community. BJ Conley, John Colgrave, Paul Sally, George Ryan, Brian O'Connor, Rob Blackhurst, Leah Olivia, Kevin Schweller, Paul K, Jennifer Kearns, Mike Tate, Matt Wilzenski, 
Dana Koch, Joseph Kafton, Wayne Kaminsky, Jeremy Blackmore, Andrew Kruzek, Barry Shepard, Sergey Akhtavari, Steve Matson, Mike Ceresi, Chloe Costello, Daniel Orbovich, David Savage, David Moorhead, Mark Christopher, Janine Burgers Everett, Michael Shawcross, Jim Keaton, Aaron Eichens, Mads Hald Anderson, Paul Madge, Nick Bertling, Andrew Suze, Pablo. is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady. Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast is powered by Pippa. Too much on my plate Don't have no time to be a decent lover I hope it isn't too late Searching for the time that has gone so fast The time that I thought would last My ever-present past I've got too much on my mind I think of everything to be discovered I hope there's something